Good morning, everyone. Well, it's a joy to be here. I thought I'd give you a Catholic prayer for bonfire night to start with. That would surprise a few of you. Do you remember watching fireworks as a child? Moments of awe and wonder can be harder to find as we get older. So pray that you will recognize wow moments when they come along. Amen. Amy invited people earlier on to open their hands and, and receive, and it came in my, my heart what I believe is a, a Quaker tradition in the way they sometimes pray. And I invite some of you who had your hands open to receive during that time of prayer to do this privately. What the Quakers do is they sit before the Lord and they hold their hands down. And then they pray prayers of letting go of the things that the Spirit reminds them of. Of sin, fear, anxiety, worries. Just let them go. And stay as long as you need in your own prayers. And then turn your hands over and receive from God. Something that once that other stuff has gone, there's more room for what he wants to give you. Amen. It is an honor to be here and share with you. Come in this low ceilinged room. <clears throat> it takes me back 30 years in the summer of, uh, I think it was 87, somewhere around there. We, uh, we went to a warehouse on Woolerton Street, just the, the other side. People all, all walked down there. We didn't have enough chairs, so people brought their own garden chairs the first couple of weeks. Uh, we were a pilgrim people. We had some buildings of our own, but they were too small. This is already, in case you need a prophet to tell you, this building is too small. Uh, more of that in a moment. Uh, it, it had a low ceiling like this. It was longer than this. It was about 200 and something feet long. And we paid 25 pounds a week to be in there. That was all which wasn't bad for 28,000 square feet on two floors. Um, just for a season, but because of part of being a pilgrim people. And in having conversations with, uh, with Johnny over the months that you've been serving the, the Lord in this city, I'm so excited to see in every generation in a city like Nottingham, there needs to be some communities, and I believe this is one, where there is an emphasis on seeking God in prayer. Because if we don't trust him in prayer, we're not going to see as much of the supernatural as we otherwise would see. And we prayed a prayer for many, many years. Lord, will you do something so great that the only person who can get the credit is you? And a community that's committed to the presence of God, which comes in the context of our worship, and who will speak the word of the Lord both in the sense of the prophetic but in the declaration of the truth of God's word. And it is in my heart and understanding, having traveled the world, that in every community there are people who know Christ, who long to be in the fellowship of people who treasure those things. Prayer, praise, and presence, and prophecy. And they will gather to them. And among those who do not yet know Christ, there are many people. They don't know what they're longing for, but when they 
feel it when they come in they say I've come home because every one of us is born with an emptiness inside because God has put eternity in the hearts of everyone and people resonate with that sense that we become fully human when we're possessed by God yes so I look with excitement to to see how the Lord honors and blesses you as you make this pilgrim journey I'm going to open this and see if I can keep to a, to a timetable here that I have been set. Let's just clear some stuff out of the way. Forgive me. I'll put these menopauses on, that'll help. A few quotations to focus our reflections on the two passages that we've had read to us and at the heart of what I want to say to you is the desire, the need for us and the, in the heart of God to become each of us the person God created us to be. Or if you want it stated in another way, learning how to stand up and take hold. How do we stand up and take hold from our readings? So a few quotes. St. Catherine of Siena said, if you are what you should be, you will set the whole world on fire. N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, in his book of 2016, The Day the Revolution Began, he says, he's speaking predominantly around the issues to do with the cross. Jesus died for our sins, not so that we could sort out abstract things, but so that we, having been put right, could become part of God's plan to put his whole world right. That is how the revolution works. And in a daily office, some people in this room will have heard me quote from this daily office, written by a guy called Peter Scazzaro from the States, and I use it from time to time. This week I read a reflection around Psalm 139 that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And here's the devotion. David seems to have maintained the tension of two complementary but tension-bringing truths taught in Scripture. We are sinners who desperately need forgiveness and a saviour. At the same time, God created us in his image, knit us together in our mother's wombs with enormous care, and chose us for a special purpose on earth. Parker Palmer, giving an explanation of Psalm 139, said this, vocation does not come from a voice out there calling me to become something I am not. It comes from a voice in here, calling me to be the person I was born to be, to fulfill the original selfhood given me at birth by God. It is a strange gift. This birthright of self, accepting it turns out to be an even more demanding than attempting to become someone else. I have sometimes responded to that demand by ignoring the gift or hiding it or fleeing from it, or squandering it, and I think I am not alone. 
there is a Hasidic tale that reveals with amazing brevity both the universal tendency to want to be someone else and the ultimate importance of becoming one's, I would add, true self. Rabbi Zuzia, when he was an old man, said, in the coming world, they will not ask me, why were you not Moses? They will ask me, why were you not Zuzia? Put your name there. And a question to consider, what do you think might be one of your birthright gifts from God that you've been ignoring in your life? And a prayer. Lord, I come this day inviting you to cut those deeply entrenched chains that keep me from becoming faithful to my true self in Christ. In doing so, may my life be a blessing to many. In Jesus' name. Amen. A friend of mine who is the most whole broken person I've ever met in Christian ministry, he's in Australia. He says the same thing like this, TVR. We have to learn to be transparent. We have no masks. We have to be vulnerable. We have no walls. And we have to be responsible. We have no excuses. Shall I say that once more? Transparent, no masks. Vulnerable, no walls. Responsible, no excuses. Now, if you just switch off now for the rest of the morning <laughs> and play Beethoven's Ninth in your head and go away and work on that, you'll have got something worth having for the day. Here's a reflection of my own from my own teenage years when God spoke to me and called me to a life of service, particularly from the life of Joseph. It became very apparent to me and it's become more apparent as the years have gone on that each of us must become on the inside what our dream demands. Becoming the person God created you to be requires work on our part to become on the inside, particularly in the development of character and sensitivity to God, that the dream that he's given us requires. So these two scriptures, standing up and taking hold. I read this verse, these verses in Ezekiel this week, so they're my contemporary reflections. I read through the Bible in a year and I, I follow the same pattern as a basic reading, reading and then I start to study after that. So when the clock goes back, and it turns November, I know I'm going to read Ezekiel. It's an exciting time of the year to read Ezekiel. <laughs> I'd never noticed before, although I've read it many, many times, that as a Pentecostal, charismatic, spiritual Christian who loves the idea of what the Holy Spirit can do, reveal himself to me, he can overwhelm me, as he has done many times. Some of you would have had experiences of feeling that you were slain by God. I hope you weren't pushed over by a human being. That should be banned in church. Because God's quite capable of doing what needs to be done. But I hadn't noticed that the work of the Spirit is also to make us stand up. And I feel the Spirit of God has said to me 
to come here this morning and say in different ways to all of you as a congregation it's time to stand up and it's a work of the spirit in Ezekiel's call to be a prophet of God the spirit came upon me and raised me to my feet and in those verses we have the speaking voice of God God speaks to him God sends him on a mission apostolizes him as a sent person and gives him a key to his success in verse 7 as he did with others of the prophets success will not be that you speak a good word and they listen success will be that you hear my voice and say what I tell you to say and whether they listen or not is not your business so success isn't how it all works out success is about being obedient in every situation as a Christ follower so in a contemporary context 40 years ago in 1977 at about the same age that this man of God is I was given the leadership of the Christian Center and uh, I was wise enough to invite some older people to be with me and, uh, and help me and we began to believe that God wanted to do something that would bring glory to his name in the city we began to pray a prayer which I encourage you to pray that wherever the people are who belong here because this is a body and if you don't belong you can't stay and if you do belong it's going to be hard to leave uh, wherever these people are whether they're Christians or not Christians to the ends of the earth we tell them in the name of God to pack their bags and get here. Yes? Because God wants to add to you experienced soldiers and give you a, a platform for evangelism. This is to be, according to the bishop, a resource church, which means the Spirit of God is going to be in here stirring people up on a very regular basis about being a resource in a wider context than just in Trinity. Is that reasonable? So what in the specific context, as I look back over those 40 years and see how God added to me people who very significantly and continuously made me look better than I was, it's probably still true. I put in capital letters in these notes, three stand-ups. We need, and some people, particularly some experienced soldiers in this room, need to stand up and hold up the hands of those who lead you both in prayer and in how you serve the vision now from time to time in some of your prayer times maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea you literally held their hands up from time to time in places around the world I've invited congregations to say to their leaders we're with you heart and soul we won't do that publicly today but if that's how you feel about those who lead you, it wouldn't be a bad idea when you're having coffee at the end or in an email later today or when you meet them during the week to say, we're with you, heart and soul. Because out of that sense of unity and commitment to a vision, we're standing up and holding Moses' hands up like Aaron and Hur did in the Old Testament. And when his hands were held up, there was a victory in the valley. And when his hands hung down, and for those of you who maybe don't, grasp this idea there is a spiritual price to pay 
for being involved in Christian leadership in something where God is seeking to establish his kingdom in a community as he is here. So who needs to stand up and hold up the hands of your leaders? Who needs to stand and hold your own hands up in worship? And that's not just here in a place where it's easy because the atmosphere is appropriate. The songs are not about I, me and us. The songs are about him. And that's not a bad idea. There's not too much smoke and there's not too many lights flashing. And that's not a bad idea either. <laughs> we go to other places for that. So it's not difficult to sense and become aware of the presence of God. So in here, and the man of God encourages you in that area of opening your heart to go to new places as you climb the mountain, all that sort of language. But let's take it outside of here and in the 24-7 of our life, live a life of worship where at any point people who meet us will say, I met Christ in a woman today. I was touched by the kindness of God in ways that we don't necessarily grasp that we would live a life of worship as well as be part of an act of worship stand up and support the leaders in prayer stand up yourselves and lift your own hands up in worship and stand up and speak his word both in prophecy as you're encouraged this morning and let me say this I first prophesied when I was 14 and that's 60 years ago and I've come to this understanding having been taught things from a very Pentecostal point of view Here's the truth. If you learn how to encourage, there's a good possibility that you'll prophesy. If you don't learn how to encourage, there's not much chance you'll prophesy. So I, I've decided a long, long time ago, it doesn't where, where I am, I can be in a coffee shop, walking down the street, seeing a baby in the queue behind me, in the co-op yesterday or the day before and I'm going to say something positive and encouraging and I do not know where on the, that timeline where encouragement ends and prophecy begins all I know is that the more I encourage the more I prophesy and I encourage you as a congregation to be that encouraging congregation people come to a place where there's a sense of hope they come to a place where there's excitement and possibility and where there's a wow, yeah? So who's ready to stand up? I don't mean literally. That's for the man of God at the end of the service. If he wants you to stand up, do what you're told. <laughs> Some need to make a commitment in prayer. All need to make a commitment in worship. And all of us need to be carriers of the word of God. Another living word in my own heart. How long have I been speaking? 20 minutes? Well, I'm keeping to what you told me to do. <laughs> um, a very living word for me from Isaiah 66, which is interpreted in the sermon that Stephen preaches in Acts chapter 7. We won't turn to it. It was a very costly sermon. They stoned him for it. He uses the phrase in an interpretive way and asks the question, what kind of house will you build for me? says the Lord and I've thought about that for a lot of years because whether it's the foundation of your life whether it's the foundation of your marriage for your family for the business that you run or are involved in the relationship structures around your life 
the foundations of the life of a Christian community like this. What kind of house are we going to build? What sort of church are we going to build? We've been talking about it a little bit already. We have to answer the question what it actually looks like. And I felt God say to me a long time ago, and I'm going to say something different before I sit down in a moment that I've never said before. I felt him say to me, do you mind if I just touch your arm? If you gasp this message, that in our lives as individuals, we're a house built for God. We were created in such a way that we can carry the presence of God. Which, that's a mind blower to me. Because God's rather big. But he says, I want to come and live in you. And when we grasp it, it's like having our lives touched by a sense of greatness. We're not supposed to go around living our lives miserable, morbid, overwhelmed. Our lives have been touched by the greatness of God. They are then changed by his grace so that we become the people we're meant to be. And then he fills us with his glory, the glory of his presence, which is utterly transformational. And that's like a bridge between standing up and for me taking hold. Taking hold. So without going through a full exegesis, you're doing something in the book of Philippians and I'm sure your leaders will work through these verses in chapter 3 with some care later, later on. But for now... Verses 7 to 11, I'd summarize like this. Paul had found and understood something of the greatest importance that made everything else in his life less important. He called it the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He uses very graphic language. He talks about all the other things in life as though they were dung in the original language. That's pretty brutal. You say that, so all the other things are, some of the things of life are, are, are precious, they're lovely. Our marriages, our families, lots and lots of things extremely positive. But in relation to the greatness of knowing Christ, they are much less. That's a frightening statement. And there are many things that aren't worth keeping in your life at all. And then in verses 12 to 14, he seems to make four or five statements, three or four or five statements. Let me summarize them for you quickly and then we'll just go over them and check them off. See where we are. In verse 12, he makes an admission and a confession. He says, I haven't obtained all this yet. And I'm not perfect. In the language of perfect, I don't need to all the original language in many of these places, but the original language in the, the idea of perfect partly means he wasn't a child, he was an adult, but he wasn't perfect. The second thing he does in the next piece, he expresses a sort of depth of passion which he's already alluded to in calling things dung in contradistinction to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. 
he speaks of this passion and a commitment. He said, I pressed to take hold of that. And I've got a question for myself and for you. But at every stage of our life, what is that? What is your that? I've said for a long time now, there's no distinction between the people who are seen as separated to the gospel in full-time Christian service and those, the many of you, who are going to serve Christ in a vacation, working out in the world of business, in the world of the vocational structures, caring for people, healing people, ministering life to people, going to run homes and families. We're all full-time Christians is the key. We're all full-time Christians. How it works out is each of us is that. And it might change from time to time. And Paul had a passion and an understanding of what that was. He said, I'm going to press towards it. I'm going to not give up. Thirdly, he says, he expresses that he'd had a life-changing experience which motivated his life from Acts chapter 9. He said, Christ Jesus took hold of me. Is there anybody in the room can agree with me about the excitement that Christ Jesus has taken hold of your life? Yes? Come on, you're allowed to get excited about it. <laughs> Nothing better is ever going to happen to you. Fourth thing he says is, I'm still a pilgrim. I've preached about being a pilgrim for a long, long time now. I stood in Openshaw Technical High School in the east side of Manchester when I was about 14 as a late developer. I've always been a late developer. And we sang Bunyan's hymn as a kid who'd confessed Jesus. He who would valiant be against all disaster, let him in constancy follow the master. There's no discouragement to make me once relent his first avowed intent to be a pilgrim. And I used to belt it out as a kid. I had no idea what I was singing, but I, it sounded really good. I liked the whole idea. And now, 60 years later, I have all the wounds. Let me say this to you. Reading in 2 Samuel 9 last week, the story of Mephibosheth, he was dropped. Every one of us, sometime or other, gets dropped. We're all crippled in some way or another, but we're invited to a new covenant table where the King of Glory wants to show us kindness, restore our fortunes, and let us sit at his table and cover our crippledness, and if we allow him to heal it completely. So even though we've all been dropped on this pilgrimage of life, he says, yeah, I'm still, I'm still on the way. I haven't yet taken hold of it. And then he says one thing, and he seems to multiply the words as Paul often does. But the one thing was toward the goal to win the prize for which God called me. It says heavenward, but actually that's not a great, great meaning. It's, it means something. 
not just otherworldly, but it's a now as well as a then. And he talks about by forgetting, by straining or stretching, the idea of stretching is that my eyes see it, my hands follow and my legs follow, like, like an athlete reaching for the finishing line. And my eyes are on the line, my hands are following, and my feet get me over the line. And you see these athletes, you know, many of them, they surge their head forward. That's the sort of language he's using, straining, stretching. I'm putting energy into this. I have received something because he's taken hold of my life, but I'm not going to do my part to get the prize for which he calls me forward. Okay? Right, let's go through them again. Anybody need any help on the first one? We admit we're not there yet. I haven't obtained it and I'm not perfect. Any, anybody obtained it and perfect? Doesn't need prayer because... No, that, that's not you. You, you aren't perfect. <laughs> you, you, you are the right... You're the righteousness of God. You're the righteousness of God, but you're not perfect. I'm with, I'm with Paul. There's still something developing in us. Yes? Uh, just We'll talk after. Just hold. Uh, I don't need to talk about that anymore. It's, it's an admission to me. I know I haven't got to where I need to get to, even after 60 years. Do any of us need to be reminded, challenged afresh, challenge for the first time to have a passion and a commitment to press forward to the call that Christ has put on each of our lives our personal that, that that's homework for you and for me do any of us need to be reminded or maybe you've come into this church as a religious person or maybe you've never been in church before there are 50% of the people in our country don't even know who Jesus is. And you might be one of them. And you go, I, do, I, don't, I like the atmosphere, I like the welcome, the coffee's all right. I'm a bit mesmerized by it all. Jesus wants you to know he loves you and wants, and he won't force it, he wants to take hold of your life. He wants to take hold of it. And for those of who've had that experience for me at numbers of levels, as a boy of 10 living in Belfast in Northern Ireland, I had a wonderful Sunday school teacher called Mrs. Martin. And she asked me many times whether I would be a follower of Jesus. My father was the pastor of the church. And that September Sunday afternoon, 10 years of age, I said yes. And when all the kids in the Sunday school were running all around the building, I knelt down by a little wooden form that went backwards and forwards like tram seats used to do. And she led me in a prayer that invited me to recognize that Jesus had taken my place. And that I was sorry even as a boy because I knew I was a sinner. And I felt the cleansing forgiveness of God flow through my life. And I went and sat in my father's big old Humber Super Snipe car, which was a military car that he'd bought in an auction. And I sat in the leather seat and I jumped up and down because I knew, I absolutely knew that I was forgiven. If you've had an experience like that and you've forgotten and just allowed it to get a bit distant, go and sit somewhere quiet and let the Lord remind you and bring it all back again and get that sense of, wow, 
that God in his love would choose you. I had many experiences in my teenage years. It culminated in, in one in the town hall in Bolton when I was about 18. Someone had invited people as to whether they or not they would make their lives available to Jesus in whatever way he wanted to use them. And I went and knelt at the front. And we went home on the bus afterwards. Everybody was shouting and going on as young people do. And I couldn't be doing with it because I just knew that something had touched my life. And maybe some of us need to be reminded of that. Or if you've never had that experience, you go and sit before God and say, Lord, however you want to use me, I'm available. Anybody open to recognize that we're not strong enough on our own, even the strongest of us, and there are people in this room who are battle-hardened Christians, but none of us are strong enough on our own. We're pilgrims who haven't yet taken hold of everything. And who needs to forget some stuff? Who needs to put more strain into reaching forward? Forgetting, straining, stretching, pressing. The whole idea of energy and effort. We have to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of us. I said to you I was going to change my words from that moment when I understand that my life is a temple for God and everything that's constructed around my life is to be a home for him. This church community is to be a home for him. It has to be built on great foundations. I want to say this to you from the reading we have. I haven't just been touched by greatness. The word in the original language is apprehended. Arrested. Taken hold is a sort of easy, limited word, isn't it? Apprehended means seized, arrested. I understand something, not just touched by greatness, but arrested and apprehended by the God of the universe. That through his grace and kindness, the plan that he had when he created the world and when he made covenants with people and when his covenant love took him to the cross to do more than forgive us of our sins, which it did, but it, it dealt a death blow to the kingdom of darkness, that the kingdom of God would be established on earth and that the church would be a revelation of his glory in order for him to bring an out, about an end to this present scene of things, not so that we'd all go to heaven and sit on clouds and play harps. That's not the sort of heaven I'm looking for. If you understand me as a bloke, he's talking about a new heaven and a new earth in which dwells righteousness and something that's going to go on forever. And I go, and I, miserable meanie me, I've been apprehended seized upon, arrested, grabbed by almighty God to bring me in line with his eternal purpose. Whew. That's a wow. And if I grasp and understand that, then I'm going to look to apprehend the that that helps me fulfill what he apprehended me for. 
One commentator said, for us to apprehend it, it means not merely to receive something, but to grasp it with astonished joy. I finish. Back to N.T. Wright. He says, by six o'clock, on the evening of the first Good Friday, according to the early Christians, the world was a different place. What was different? Why was it different? And how might that revolutionary difference challenge us today, summoning us to our vocation as followers of the shameful scandalous crucified Jesus I invite you to spend a moment as the man of God comes and takes the rest of our service and ask yourself the questions of where in your life is it time to stand up and where is it time to understand how much you have been apprehended taken hold of that you're going to take hold of the life that brings the prize to hear his well done, good and faithful servant. Amen.